Today we'll be taking a look at Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. So if you're not there in your Bibles yet, please turn there as we'll get to those verses in just a moment. The book of Romans is a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. It is perhaps the greatest letter ever written. No other literary work so richly and beautifully articulates redemption in Jesus Christ like this letter. Of all the epistles, the letter to the Romans describes salvation by grace through faith in Jesus in the richest of detail. Redemption in Jesus is profoundly articulated by Paul through the first 11 chapters of the book. And starting in chapter 12, he pivots to the implications of that redemption for our lives as God's people. Chapter 13 begins to tell us what living for Jesus looks like by first considering the civil government. What it's supposed to do, what it's supposed to be, and what we as God's people are supposed to do and how we are to interact with it. The mandates in Romans chapter 13 are pretty sobering, both for citizens and those in public service. My desire today, as always, is for you to see the beauty and wisdom of Jesus and to understand what that means for us as his people. I also want us to build a robust biblical political theology. You may think the Bible has nothing to offer us in terms of politics and government, but this simply is not so. In the realm of government, as with all areas of our lives, we must ask ourselves how our lives can be better conformed to what Jesus says. If we do not equip our words equip our lives with the word of God, will be equipped by the voices of the world instead. This must not be so. To dispel any thoughts that you may be having at this point, I will never tell you who you must vote for. I'll never say there is only one God-honoring policy option, and I will never tell you that God is solely on one side or another of the political spectrum. I will never tell you these things because God himself does not tell us that. It is dangerous for us to draw straight lines from the Bible to specific policy agendas, platforms, or pieces of legislation. There are issues we must support and others we cannot support. I sincerely believe we have much liberty in the way we do politics, which policies we support and oppose, and which candidates we vote for. God's people can support and oppose a myriad of policies and issues and do not have to belong to any one particular group. God can be honored in opposing viewpoints on a given topic. Both, neither, all, or none can be God-honoring positions. In all instances, there is not a singular God-honoring option, though there are options that do dishonor God. What the Bible offers us is a macro view of what God's people are to be and how they're to engage with politics and government. A broad and general description of what that looks like. God is primarily concerned with our hearts and our desire for him and his glory. He's concerned with how our behavior reflects on his character. That is what we'll see in Romans 13 today. We will see that when it comes to politics and government, God is most concerned with our hearts and what our actions communicate to others about him. His glory is always at the center. Today we'll see three main things in this text. We'll see the authority of government, the purpose of government, and the Christian's responsibility to government. I'll say those again. First, the authority of government. Second, the purpose of government. And third, the Christian's responsibility to government. At the end, we'll take a moment to apply everything that we'll see today. With that... Let's take a look first at the authority of government. Notice verses 1 and 2. They say, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. All authority, whether righteous or corrupt, benevolent or malevolent, exists because God has given them authority. He is sovereign over all things and uses all things to accomplish his purpose. God has ordained the who, what, and when of history. No government or any of its actions are outside the purview of God. Their existence and boundaries are appointed by him, and they will do nor go any further than what God has decided. 
The following texts help us see this more clearly. Job chapter 12, verses 23 and 24 say this. He makes nations great, and he destroys them. He enlarges nations, and he leads them away. He takes away understanding from the chiefs of the people of the earth and makes them wander in trackless waste. Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 through 22 says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is darkness and light dwells with him. God is sovereign over the nations. He even takes away the minds of its leaders when he wants to. Do you remember the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar? In Daniel chapter 4, God takes away his mind. Nebuchadnezzar lives like a beast of the field and eats grass because God took away his sense. God is sovereign over the nations and its rulers. He has ordained their time when they come and when they go. He decides who rules and when they do it. We've established here in God's word so far that God is king over all things. He has instituted the governments of man and given them authority here in verse 1. And in verse 2, he commands us to obey them. And he warns that judgment will come if we don't. Since their authority is from God, we are to obey the government in obedience to God. To properly obey the Lord, we must obey the governments he has ordained to rule over us. Disobeying the government for selfish, prideful reasons is akin to disobeying God. Does this mean there is never a time to disobey the government? We'll talk about that more later, but for now it's appropriate for us to remember that the answer is no. Because the government has been given its authority by God, its authority is not absolute. They are to rule within the bounds God has placed for them. There is a time, though very select, when we are permitted to disobey the government. But we'll have to discuss that more in just a little bit. This being said, back to verse 2. We see here there is judgment that accompanies disobeying the civil authorities. Why? That's the question we're going to try to answer in the next portion of this message. We have seen the authority of government and that it is from God. Next. We will see the purpose of government and its authority. This is number two. Verse 3 will begin to answer the question of why does disobedience to government bring judgment as we see the purpose of government and how it's tied to this judgment. Verse 3 in the verse 4 says, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. First, verse 3 is describing what the government ought to be. Paul is saying, if a government is behaving as it should in accordance to the charge that God has given it, then you'll have nothing to fear. Unfortunately, far too many governments have ruled over its subjects and citizens ruthlessly and tyrannically. That's for sure. For the sake of its own power, this is contrary to God's call to government. Second, Paul is saying that if a government does good and we are doing good, then we should have a fruitful relationship together. This is an idealistic picture. This is what government ought to be. This is how we ought to engage with it. It won't always look this way sometimes, but nonetheless, it is what God has called us and the government to be and do. Let's continue to look in the verse 4. The rest of that verse says, But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. This is the answer to why judgment comes from disobeying the government and why it has been given authority over us by God. Government is God's chosen instrument to promote human flourishing by approving good and punishing evil. I'll say that again. Government is God's chosen instrument to promote human flourishing by approving good and punishing evil. Therefore, Opposing God's means is rejecting his purpose. Defying the instrument is maligning his will. God chooses to work his will through earthly vessels, and human government is one of those that he chooses to use. Through government, God promotes the flourishing of man by rewarding good and punishing bad. 
denying the government its right to our submission and therefore hindering it from completing its charge that God has given to it through our rebellion. God's displeased with us. This is why judgment comes for disobeying the government. Our rebellion against government defies the authority that God has given to it and prevents it from completing its God-given mission. That's meant for our good. Notice the word Avenger in verse 4. We've all seen or heard of the blockbuster Marvel series, The Avengers. It is an undeniably action-packed, fantastical, entertaining picture of what it looks like for an entity to punish the bad guy. In fact, an Avenger, by definition, is a person or entity who exacts punishment or inflicts harm in return for an injury or wrong. They are to, in a sense, make things right. So in real life, God has given the state to be our temporal earthly avenger. This truth is found right here in Romans 13. The state is given the right and responsibility to exact vengeance on a guilty party to promote human flourishing. Verse 4 says it bears the sword for this very purpose. An important thing to remember in this is that Jesus is our true avenger. One day, the Son of God will return to make all things new. In doing so, He will right every wrong, and vengeance will be truly had. God will avenge His beloved Son and His people into eternity. Revenge is the Lord's. He tells us so. Until that day, God has graciously provided us with an earthly avenger to provide a semblance of true and ultimate justice that will be rendered by our King Jesus one day. This has huge implications for how we are to respond to wrongdoing to us and the expectations we have of our governments. This is why, in part, we experience such disappointment when we see someone get off scot-free when they do something horrible. When the evildoer is not punished by the earthly avenger who has been charged with doing so, we can and should be disappointed. It's not right. It should not be that way. While disappointment is warranted, we must never lose sight of the true and perfect renderer of justice, Jesus, who ultimately and surely punished the evildoer for the wrong they have done in eternity. One way or another, Jesus is going to take care of it. Take heart in that as justice goes unserved in this world. Verse 4 is a warning to all who desire evil or are tempted to do wrong. The authorities are charged by God to come after you if you do bad things. The government is meant to be a restraining agent on sin and a deterrent of bad things. The threat of the authorities can and does cause us to regulate our behavior to some degree. It is good for our society when we see that bad is dealt with. When we see the institutions installed by God fulfilling their duties, it strengthens our faith in his sovereign reign. And it also provides us a degree of security and certainty in our context, which then allows us to flourish. If we ask, how is the government the servant of God? Our answer is, it punishes bad and rewards good for the sake of human flourishing in this world. Government is God's instrument to accomplish this end. The purpose of government is to be an instrument of justice, acting to encourage and enable human flourishing. As odd as it may sound sometimes, when we look around and see the way that things are, we should be praising God for government. It's meant for our good. We have seen the authority of government and the purpose of government. Now let's talk about the third thing we see in this text, the Christian's responsibility to government. Please look at verses 5 and 7 of Romans 13. They say this, Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Think about that for a minute. Let that sink in for a second. We as sinful human beings have an issue with this, have a hard time with submission. But especially as Americans, we have a hard time with this. It's harder for us even as Americans because to some degree, when it comes to our government, we pick it. We vote for or against giving it power. 
While we collectively have authority in our republic by electing our representatives, we are still obligated to obey the laws that they pass. Just because our votes decide who makes the laws on our behalf does not mean we get to pick and choose which laws to obey. Why? Why, you may ask. Why do I have to submit to someone I voted for? To somebody I didn't? First off, we are ruled by the U.S. Constitution, our state's constitution, and our city, village, county, or township charters. Power and authority from those documents flow in our republic. The people and its representatives have power through these constitutions or charters that create their governments, and those governments that have those powers because of those founding documents have authority because God gave it to them. Romans 13 tells us this. So, we have to submit to the people who win elections whether or not we voted for them because the constitutions and charters that formally create their government say so. And in Romans chapter 13, God says to obey the governments because their authority comes from him. Now, the question of why may still linger, though our question has been sufficiently answered here by Romans chapter 13. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17 reiterate the answer of Romans 13 with a little bit of addition. This additional text will help us round out our understanding of what God has to say about government and how we are to interact with it. Please turn with me then in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Those verses say this. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God, honor the emperor. All government, regardless of its structure or where it derives its earthly authority, it has its power from God. It has no more or no less than what God has bestowed upon it. So when we ask, why submit? The answer is, for the Lord's sake. As Romans 13 and verse 13 in 1 Peter tells us. We submit to the authorities because God says so, because God has given an authority over us and has called us to submit to it, whether we voted for it or not. Once it has power, we're to submit to it. Still in verse Peter, look at verses 15 through 17. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. When we submit to the government out of reverence for Christ, it shows the world that we have been transformed by grace, that God has made a people with new hearts that live to worship him rightly. We can give people calls to revile the gospel with our rebellion and nastiness, or we could be salt and light to them by doing good and submitting to the authorities. This doesn't mean we cannot disagree with or even criticize the government sometimes. We should do that. That's a good thing for us to do sometimes. But we have to be respectful and thoughtful when we do it. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 echo this sentiment. They say this. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. We must not be a quarrelsome people. We shouldn't be combative, but gentle, courteous, and bold. We should have courage when we're faced with those who try to dispel God's truth. But we cannot be known for our mockery and disdain of those that disagree with us. This cannot be so. It is to the detriment of the gospel and a stench in God's nostrils when his people are better known for their disparaging remarks and taunting than they are for cherishing God himself. 
It must not be so. Moving on. Let us now return to Romans 13 to take a look at its final few verses before we turn our attention to what we've learned from this today. Again, verses 5 through 7 of Romans 13 say, Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Why why that part about sake of conscience? Why would this affect our conscience? One word. Guilt. Guilt that comes from disobeying God. Guilt that comes from knowing that we've sinned against the God who loves us and gave himself for us. Wrath is warranted because this verse tells us so. I think verse 5 says this because it's pointing out the damage sin wreaks on our conscience due to the fact that we're doing something that offends God, warrants wrath, and that Jesus had to die for. Our selfish, prideful, unjustified rebellion against the authority placed over us is something that Jesus had to die for. It is sin. That is why, for the sake of conscience, we should obey. So we do not experience the damage done to a conscience that has to reckon with the implications of its rebellion. Now, for that final part about taxes. Why is Paul telling us to pay our taxes? I think Paul tells us this because he wants us to see that our tax money enables the government to do the job that it's charged to do by God. We therefore enable the government to reward good and punish the evildoer for our good by paying our taxes. Think about it. It takes resources to do anything, and we know the government needs money in order to do its job. So, setting aside the arguments about how much it needs to do this, we must understand that government needs money to do what God has called it to do. And we are commanded to give it money to do its job that God says is meant for our good. The next time we file our taxes, maybe we should try to think about it that way. You and I are helping the authorities carry out their divine charge that is for our good. Maybe we'll grumble a lot less if we think about it like that. We can dislike or disagree with tax rates. Sometimes we should. But once the rates are set, our job is to pay what is owed. We must trust the Lord to punish any corruption or any theft that comes from the collection of taxes by the authorities. He will deal with it one way or another. That we can be assured of. But in the meantime, we pay what the government says it needs to carry out its task. It is meant for our good. To summarize, we have seen that the government has authority given to it from God, that the government's purpose is to punish bad and praise good for the sake of human flourishing and therefore our good, and that we have a responsibility to submit to our government as it carries out its divinely given purpose because God has commanded us to do so. Now that we have examined what God's word says, here are five things that we should remember going forward. Number one, remember what authority God has and hasn't given to government. The government has been given the authority to punish evildoers and reward good, but not enforce right worship of God. We should not view the government as a weapon to enforce our will on others or coerce obedience to God's law. This does not mean we should not support or oppose certain issues. We should seek the good of the city. But we have to be thoughtful about how our engagement reflects on God and what it communicates to others about him. We cannot pursue political objectives in hateful ways. We cannot be apathetic towards the suffering of others. And we cannot dehumanize and dismiss our fellow man. This behavior is unacceptable for God's people. It cannot be so. Number two. Remember, the government's power is not absolute. At the beginning, if you remember, I mentioned we'd come back to this question about, is the government's power absolute? We have answered that with a definitive no. There are instances where it's permitted to disobey the government. The next question that naturally flows is when. When is it permitted to do so? 
There are an infinite number of scenarios we could try to analyze and debate what perfect obedience looks like. Each is to be treated on a case-by-case basis. But there are some general principles that apply to all scenarios. First, a good question to ask yourself when in in any given situation is, am I being asked to do something that God forbids? Will compliance with the authorities cause me to transgress against God's law or engage in behavior that is displeasing to God? If the answer is yes, then non-compliance would be permitted. We are never to sin. and must never subject ourselves to something attempting to coerce us to do so. We have to reject it. Second, in contrast to the first, am I being forbidden from doing something that God commands? Will compliance with this rule rob the Lord of his right to be worshipped? If the answer is yes, then noncompliance would be permitted. God must be worshipped. Third, and this is the murkiest of all, does this violate my conscience? Go with your conscience in the moment, but know it's not infallible, and your conscience may need to be better conformed to God's word in that given area. Do the best you know how, rely on grace as always for your mistakes, and be very, 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 very careful before you choose to not obey the authorities for the reasons of conscience. Our hearts can be deceitful, and we can be convinced that we are totally right when we are absolutely wrong. Remember, when it comes to government, we should be characterized by a posture of obedience, and compliance should be our default. In these three general instances where noncompliance may be permitted, God's glory is at the center of it. Not our own self-interest. This is never to be a license for rebellion. Most instances we are going to be t- where we are tempted to disobey the government are not going to be because we think the glory of God is at stake. But because we want to be the supreme authority in our lives and do whatever it is that we want to do. We can debate the merit or lack thereof of certain public policies. That's a healthy thing for us to do sometimes. We can question the wisdom of certain traffic laws, but these are not valid reasons for disobeying the government. Paul tells us to pay our taxes. Even if we think the rates are too high and our government is corrupt and wasteful, in all matters, trivial or not, Submission to earthly authorities placed over us are required by God unless we are being asked to choose between Him or them. This is required of us in all our relationships with authority. Submit, obey for the Lord's sake. That's number two. Now on to number three. Remember that government is meant to be God's servant for our good. Pray for those in government. Love them. Help them do their job in the way that you can. If your government is corrupt, pray that they would repent. If your government neglects its duty to reward good and punish evil, pray that they would remember their charge from God. They're supposed to do that. If we view earthly authority rightly, I think we will be much more thankful for them and trust that in most instances, they are goodwill towards those they rule over. Often, whether consciously or not, we demonize the government and assume the worst. We might not vocalize at all time, but I think it's just presupposition in our minds. There are numerous examples of corruption and wrongdoing, to be sure. Far too many to count. This is unfortunate, but thankfully... It's not a result of malice towards citizens in most cases. By God's grace, most public officials and servants are goodwill towards the public in America. Meaning they wish us no harm or ill will. Doesn't mean they're perfect. They're not actively seeking out the destruction of their community, this state, or country, but actually looking to see it benefit, even if it seems like they don't sometimes. Thankfully, they by and large act without malice and are goodwill toward their fellow man. This may seem obvious to some of you. You might be saying, why is he even saying this? But I remind us of it. Because oftentimes it seems like we believe the opposite. Mercifully, most government impropriety is born out of sheer selfishness, without any care for how it affects the public. Indifference is the culprit, not overt malice. Selfish ambition 
not spite. The behavior is wrong, and it should not be so, but it is not as severe as it could be. Thankfully, we don't have public officials intentionally, violently, systematically killing citizens in the streets with impunity here. We should be thankful that it's not worse while wanting it to be better. Acknowledging mercy, but recognizing how it ought to be. By God's grace, government can be for our good. He has called them to be his servant to that end. The state and those who run it are ultimately responsible for how they do or don't follow the charge that God has given to them. Number four. Remember, we live in a pluralistic society. Ours is a land filled with people that think and do and believe a multitude of different things. They don't think like us and they won't. And we can't expect them to all the time. To an extent, we have to accept those differences in order to exist in the same context. Acceptance doesn't have to mean approval in all instances. Sometimes we can accept a person's behavior for the sake of harmony while declaring it sinful. A person may insist on approval, but we cannot do that. We can't tell them something is good when it's not. We can't tell them something is true when it's not. They have a responsibility for the sake of harmony to accept that. Acceptance and approval can be separate things that are often conflated, but they are not always the same. On a personal relationship level, this gets super tricky, like really, really tricky to try to figure this stuff out. But on a societal level, I think we make it much harder than it needs to be a lot of the time. On a societal level, each side is often dissatisfied by the other's response or behaviors, and folks want more or less from someone else, depending on what the situation is. We must love our neighbors, seek to understand them, proclaim God's truth with kindness, and in some cases be able to live with them disagreeing with us and continuing to behave poorly. Acceptance of behavior is not always approval of it. Acknowledging freedom is not affirmation of conduct. We don't have to support certain things, should not support some things, but we also don't have to oppose everything we don't like either or rail against it because we disapprove of it or know it's sinful. Unbelievers are going to act like unbelievers, and we have to accept that to some degree while not approving of the sin in their lives. Sin is always a big deal, and we can never, ever, ever approve of it. But we also have to acknowledge that we can't legislate it away, and it is going to be a part of our society until Jesus returns. There has to be reciprocity in this acceptance if a society is to continue. All sides have to accept some things. Freedom of religion and thought require this to be so. Those things can't exist if there's not some acceptance. There are limits, of course. Absolutely, there are limits. But we must not exclude one another from participation in society because we disagree with each other and disapprove of certain actions and behaviors. Striking the balance where all of God's principles are satisfied in our actions is not easy. But we have to try. And we often make it harder than it has to be and just settle for vitriolic rancor that gets us nowhere, that solves nothing, and everybody just shuts everybody out. We can't control everyone else's behavior, but we can control our own. We can even regulate it as we hold one another accountable for our behavior. Acknowledging sin in our own lives, confessing it to one another, and repenting of it will always, always be a more powerful testimony for the gospel than railing against sin in an unbeliever's life. Sin within the American church is rampant. If those of us professing the name of Christ can't act right, then why in the world do we expect it from people that don't even proclaim to know Him? We have to repent of sin in our covenant communities, forgive when needed, knowing that this pleases God, obeys His commands to us as His church, and shows the world that He actually has transformed the people for Himself. He has given people new hearts so they can worship him rightly. Let us be more concerned with the sin in our own lives, both individually and within the church, and less about the sin in everyone else's lives in our city, state, or country. I think we'll do a lot more good that way. Number five, remember to not misuse the power of government. This is closely tied to number four. 
As Christians, we can be tempted to want to see God's kingdom reflected on earth through the power of government, through political victory. This is an abuse of the sword of government, using it for purposes it was not intended for and cannot accomplish. The government has a very specific purview. We've seen that today. To praise good and punish bad. It is not God's instrument to enforce right worship of him or to ensure the presence of Christ's kingly reign on earth. He didn't institute it for that purpose, and therefore we should not try to use it to that end. The government cannot advance the kingdom of God. History is ripe with examples of people who have tried and failed miserably, and we shouldn't be surprised of the catastrophic results. It's a futile attempt, and it wreaks havoc on any society that tries. The kingdom of God is not expressed through government. The church is God's ordained instrument to carry forward the gospel. Through the proclamation of the word of God, the spirit brings faith, not laws banning behavior or dissent. Civil laws banning pluralistic behavior or the privileged Christianity over religions will not convert anyone. Not a single soul will be converted through using the sword of government that way. The church is a separate institution from government according to God himself with a distinct and higher calling. Let's not confuse the institutions or cross their missions. It's to the detriment of the gospel when we do that. We live in a world where most people are not believers of Jesus. They are not converted. They do not have new hearts. They have not been transformed by grace. They do not know the mercy of God in forgiveness purchased for them by Jesus applied to them. They live in unrepentant rebellion and cannot worship God. Pray for them. Love them. Don't force them to conform to God's law through political means. That's not our role. That's not the government's role. It's God's role. God will ensure right worship of himself as he brings sinners to new life, transforming them by grace and applying that salvation through faith in Jesus. Right worship of God is and should be put on display by his people, the church. We are the primary expression of his kingship on earth. No political outcome can ensure this because it was not ordained to be so. The kingdom of God will not be seen through the sword of government, not brought about by force, but will be seen in the church as God builds her when he saves sinners. When God rescued you from the darkness of sin, he made you his ambassador on earth. When you were freed from the bondage of sin, you were freed to worship him rightly. You and I are an expression of God's kingdom on earth. You and I are meant to ensure the right worship of God in our own lives, not the lives of believers. Our job is to proclaim the gospel and trust that God will build his church. As others are brought into the fold by the regenerating work of the Spirit, they too will display the right worship of God in their lives. That's how God ensures His right worship, by saving sinners. Not by commissioning His church to abuse the sword of government in an attempt to do what it can never do. The government cannot change hearts. Only God can. So let's not use it to coerce behavior that we should only expect to come from new hearts. Political coercion will at best bring behavior modification. Shame on us if that is our sole goal. To merely see people behave in a way that makes us more comfortable. To through government force the world to be as we want it to be. The collateral damage of this pursuit is immeasurable. Hearts are hardened to the gospel. And God is grieved when we pursue political victory above all else. We cannot do this. It must not be so. You and I must remember where our true citizenship and hope lies. This earth is not our home. As sojourners and exiles here on earth, we should never get too comfortable. There should never be a point where we are satisfied with the way that this world is. This being said, we cannot look to politics to make the world perfect. Politics cannot make heaven on earth. Only the return of King Jesus can do that. Our hope is Jesus and his promise to make all things new when he returns at the end of the age.
Until then, let us not believe the empty promises of politics to make the world perfect. It can't do it. Let us not look to government to right every wrong without fault. Let us not prioritize our earthly citizenship over our ultimate citizenship in heaven. The culture war is fierce. All sides have resorted to the political process to try and win. But this war is unwinnable, this side of heaven. The church's mission cannot be diminished to a mere culture war. We should desire change, and we can see some changes come. But we cannot expect it to merely come from the political process, especially when it's abused and used as a weapon to subject others to one's will. The best way for us to affect the culture at large for good is twofold. Be a powerful witness through our obedience to Christ and joy in him and discipleship. When the world sees that Jesus is supreme in our lives, it affects how they view us and God. When we disciple our own, it changes how the world thinks. How does Christian discipleship do this? How can it change the world and affect the city that we live in? It changes the world because we are commanded by God to go out into the world, be in it, but not of it, to, as we are going about our lives in this world, be subject to Christ and faithful to his commandments. When the church sends its people out into the world, equipped with the word of God, it changes the way things are done and thought about in this society. Christian discipleship does not merely have internal effects. It can change the place we live in because you and I work in it. We go shopping in it. You go to the senior center in it. As we're going about our lives bearing witness to Christ's transformative work, it can change the way even unbelievers think and behave. Instead of clamoring for things to be illegal or shaming those we disagree with, maybe we should raise up the next generation of leaders to do what's right. Teach them the commandments of the Lord so when they enter the world and make decisions that affect everybody else, they at the very least know what is right and have the good of the city in mind. If we want politics and government and society at large to be morally upright to any degree, we must teach people God's word. Right politics is not the goal, but a gracious byproduct of our attempts to evangelize and disciple. God's worship is the goal and should always be the motivation for our obedience to God's commands. I once read about a very prominent politician who spoke fondly of his formative years. As a boy, his parents were affiliated with a church, and he attended a religious school. Thankfully, it sounds like he was taught true things about God and that what God says is right. As an adult, by all indicators, it appears this person is not a believer. Even so, those formative years did affect the way he viewed the world and the decisions that he makes as a public official. This person was concerned about what was right. It mattered to him. His conscience was influenced by God's word, though he may not yet be saved by it. This is grace, that God would use even an unbeliever exposed to his truth as a servant for the good of the public. God will use Bereans to make true, born-again believers, but he'll also use us to influence unbelievers as well. By teaching our young ones and the people we have contact with the word of God, their moral conscience will be formed or reshaped, or affected in some way. And the way they live their lives will be affected. As they go out then making decisions and taking action in their sphere of influence, it can change the way things are done. Character formation is one of the most effective ways we can influence the political landscape and see politics conducted in a way that's good. Investing in the lives of our kids and the people we meet, teaching them the commandments of the Lord, and being a Christ-like example to them as we're expected to, accomplishes far more good, far more good than trying to use government as a weapon to win a culture war. Look around you. There are living, breathing people in this room that you can teach about Jesus. Will you do it? For the sake of God's glory, their joy, and the good of this city, Will you spend yourself to make God's word known to the people of Brian? 
Will you teach the people in your lives who aren't here this morning the goodness of the law of the Lord? If you want them to know Jesus, you will. If you want the city to have a sense of morality in any way, you will. We've talked a lot today. Each component of this message could have weeks and weeks on end of messages on it. I'd love to discuss any of this more with you one-on-one if you'd like some time. Please feel free to ask me anything. I promise you now I won't have answers for most of it. And we will disagree about some things. I'll love you anyway, and I'll ask that you do the same for me. So, this being said, and considering all that we've talked about, here are three practical things we can do that I think will help us do politics and interact with our government and each other in more God-honoring ways. First, read more and watch less. We are an entertainment and convenience-seeking society. We prefer things fast and stimulating. Videos and television are a quick way and captivating way to receive information. But they often lack the analysis of printed word. And they're inclined to be more emotional in nature. We emote when others emote. When the guy on TV is angry, we get angry. When the guy in the Twitter video is mad, we get mad. Perhaps nothing else in our culture is more emotionally charged right now than politics. When we primarily learn about political views and news through emoting videos, we learn to think of politics as a primarily emotional exercise. We learn to be angry over everything that challenges our views and hate those who disagree with us. We're mad at them. We begin to be conditioned to think every political moment in debate is life or death. It's not. It's sad when we meet those who disagree with us primarily with anger and mean-spiritedness. Disagreement can be good because it sharpens the mind and often strengthens faith in what God says. While emotion is communicated through the written medium, too, it is not as intense and is restrained by the analysis that can be done through writing. In writing, emotions can be kept in check by the rational thought that can be construed from what's communicated. Written material causes us to pause and think before we react. Our consumption is slower, and it gives our minds time to process what we just consume before we form an opinion and react. On the other hand, videos throw an opinion at us that demands an immediate response. So we are carried forward by emotion that is detached, detached from much, if any, reason or thought. Words come out, tweets are tweeted, posts are posted, and the damage is done. Videos and television can be useful resources to be sure. I like them. But they can be harmful and are undoubtedly limited. We must be a thinking people and have thoughtful, informed opinions and responses. We must be discerning when considering what's before us and never allow ourselves to be carried away by emotion. The gospel suffers when we do this. We create stumbling blocks when we open our mouths and allow angry, mean-spirited things to spew out of them. Another facet of this exhortation to consider our information consumption is to read from a variety of sources and perspectives. We live in an age of abundant information, yet the truth is hard to come by sometimes. Often the best we can hope for is to arrive at an approximation of the truth, something close but not quite. When we consume information from a singular source, we will most likely be further away from the truth and our opinions will be formed around the sole perspective of the matter. Something close, but not quite. The best way to get closest to the truth of an issue or situation and have the most objective, informed view possible is to read about it from a multiple, from multitude of sources and varying perspectives. It can be hard work. It can be exhausting to do that, but it's necessary in order for us to know what's going on as best we can before forming an opinion and sharing it with others. Rarely. Well, we as regular people have all the facts or knowledge of the situation. We have to then be satisfied with this approximation of truth. There are things we just won't know or won't understand due to obfuscation or the complexity of an issue or situation. You and I must be humble enough to admit that. Sometimes we have to say, I don't know what's going on. For all these reasons, when consuming information, I encourage you to read more from a variety of sources and watch less. Second, listen more and talk less. Listen to the people around you. 
seek to know them and understand why they do the things that they do and why they say what they say. Words are often a window into the soul, and if we want to reach people with the gospel, we have to listen to them. That way we can apply the gospel to their lives with grace, love, kindness, and courage. When a person is hearing the gospel from someone else that clearly loves them, it can soften and prime their hearts for the Spirit's work. On the other hand, mean-spirited rhetoric harden and stiffen hearts. We must love others by listening to them. We must love others by being thoughtful in what we say and how we say it. Just because we think it doesn't mean we have to say, tweet, post, or write about it. Something being true doesn't justify the way we say it or determine the appropriateness of its timing. There are times and contexts when even true things need to be kept to ourselves. Listen more and talk less. Third, pray. Pray for discernment. Ask God to help you do this. Ask Him to help you know what to say, how to say, and when to say it. Some people are too sensitive. So what? That's not your problem. It's theirs. Ask God to help you love them and speak to them gently, but with courage so that they have no reason to revile His name. Let the gospel offend. Don't be offensive in and of yourself. If you and I care about God and His truth, we will ask Him to help us with this. And we need His help. We depend on His help to do these things. He will help you because He's concerned with building His church and making His name great. In closing, will you do it? Will you think deeply about God, seeking to have your view of politics shaped by His Word and not the world? Will you invest in the lives of others for their and the community's good? Will you pray for wisdom and discernment? Will you pray that God's will is done and not yours? Will you remember this earth is not your home while not ignoring the human suffering around you? You and I must do these things. Let's pray.